Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. This is the podcast that connects with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Pride in the Pews is a grassroots nationwide campaign aimed at celebrating stories of a resilient queer community. Like its founder, Pastor Don Abram, many in the LGBTQ plus community have found that the church that had loved them, raised them, and reared them as children and young adults turned its back on them when they came out. This experience pushed Abram to found Pride in the Pews. The nonprofit launched in 2020 collects and shares stories of LGBTQ plus people in the black church and includes a group of eight historically black religious denominations and other Christian groups that primarily minister to African Americans. Pride in the Pews will be receiving an esteem award at the July awards ceremony in Chicago. Joining us today is Kelvin Taylor, Director of Partnerships and Programs, who leads Pride in the Pews workshops about statistics of LGBTQ plus members in black churches. Kelvin, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you? Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited uh, to be a part of this conversation. I'm doing well on this Tuesday evening in Chicago. How about you? Well, hey, I'm down the road in Michigan and, and just hanging in there doing well. You know, I was, as I was reading about it, and I, was, I have met so many African-American, LGBTQ plus people who um, either, so many have said they have, they've quit going to church, some who were, you know, going to the church they had been reared in but were very careful about their identity. In fact, I had one friend and we were driving somewhere. There was a group of us in the car and we stopped at the light and she sort of slouched down and we got, what's going on with you? And she said, oh, that's so-and-so from my church and I don't want her to see me in this because she might figure out that I'm gay. And we're like, what? You know, wow. but, mm-hmm. you know, and that was not that long ago. I mean, so it's mm-hmm. like, Many of us have had those kind of uh, experiences, and particularly for African Americans, the church and teachings. I mean, when we were enslaved, it was often how we learned to read, how we told each other how to escape freedom, how we gave each other solace in these hard times. And even coming up, I mean, the civil rights movement, how much of it was around the church. And the fact that, you know, 
it's such a big part of us. Mm-hmm. And to and to be denied that, you know, it's like, okay, well, cut off your eyes. How yeah. did how did you come to be involved with Pride in the Pews, and what exactly is your role with the organization? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question, and thank you for those comments. I think you're exactly right. I, you know, came to be, uh, well, first, I'm Reverend Calvin Taylor, and I am Senior Director of Partnerships and Programs at Pride in the Pews, and essentially what that means is I sort of build and lead our overall strategy as it relates to our programs, um, whether that's our curriculum trainings or our consultancy with schools and departments of public health um, and all of our other programs and partnerships. Um, I lead the strategy for those, uh, finding out ways and creating ways to uh, give folks a network, a skill set, and knowledge base to advance LGBTQ plus inclusion in their institutions. Uh, We're primarily and chiefly concerned with the overall health and wellness of black LGBTQ plus Christians. And so I would say my my identity is how I initially came to the work. You know, um, you know, they I grew up hearing the phrase and I think many of us did that God works in mysterious ways. You know, and mm-hmm. so I would say my journey to Pride in the Pews started as a kid. You know, I grew up on um in Chicago and I went to uh you know, Pentecostal, charismatic Black churches, uh, primarily on the south side of Chicago, where I um, was reared and trained in the Black Christian tradition. You know, I became involved in the Black church at a very young age, and into where I, you know, received my earliest leadership experiences. And so I was what they call an adjutant or an armor bearer for uh, the pastor. And so that just meant I worked closely with him um, and a staff of folks to assist him as he carried out um, his duties as pastor, particularly during worship services. And so um, I started that around 12 years old. Um, I started directing the youth choir. I preached my first sermon around 12, 13 years of age. And so I received a lot of fulfillment and joy out of doing so, a lot of identity. I felt at home in the Black church. Um, The sights and the sounds of the Black church resonated with my spirit. Um, But, of course, as many, you know, folks will tell you coming up, the church has a particular way of socializing you to be a certain way, right, to act a certain way, to identify in a certain way. And so as I began to, you know, explore, um, and I would even say just coming to who I was, you know, that that, the tension started then, you know. Mm. Um, It was not a mystery at all that the church did not approve or accept queer people, you know, um, in its theology and its practice. And it's funny because, you know, I saw and recognized queerness in many people in the church, particularly in certain departments, you know, particularly, as they say, you know, in the music department. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also saw it behind the pulpit. I saw it on the minister's team, et cetera. And so on the one hand, I recognize that you can be accepted for your gifts and for what you can offer the congregation 
And then on the other hand, your humanity is denied, right? So they accept the divinity and the gifts while denying your humanity. And so that creates this sort of these feelings of disjointment, if you will, right? I felt disjointed growing up in the church and that I couldn't be my full self. And so to make a long story shorter, you know, I, I've always been fascinated in in religion, particularly in the sociological aspects of religion. So how what is the relationship between religious belief and religious behavior? And how does it shape and form who we are as a society? And then how do we in our own diverse identities shape and form religion, both religious belief and religious behavior? And so those are the things that, those are the questions that I was asking. And I probably didn't have that language, you know, at 13, 14, 15 years old, uh, but I surely had the feeling and the insight for it. And so I studied that, you know, in undergrad, I went to uh, Trinity International University, uh, which is a school associated with the Evangelical Free Church of America. And so a very conservative um, strain of Christianity. And then I, you know, for graduate school, I went to Emory University, Candler School of Theology, uh, which is a school of theology that's associated with the United Methodist Church. And so I would define that or I would characterize the United Methodist Church as you know, left of center, if you will, on the theological and political spectrum. And so even my, you know, theological training um, was in the middle, if you will, right? <laughs> and so it was during those times where I began to deconstruct, you know, those messages, those theologies, you know, what we call death-dealing theologies, um, to deconstruct those and to start, you know, constructing a an outlook, a perspective, a world, a theological worldview that resonated with both uh, what I saw and read in the Bible and also with my own identity. And so, you know, for all of my career, I've been working primarily with nonprofits and, and impact-driven organizations uh, to advance equity and justice in one way or the other. And so, um, I, Don and I, the founder of Pride in the Pews, uh, who is a very, very good friend of mine, we met at our previous uh, job. We were working for an interfaith organization. Um, and then I left, and soon after, he left the organization to work for Pride in the Pews full time. And he asked me to come on board initially um, just to uh, do some outreach, right, to churches. We had just finished um, a curriculum. Uh, called Can I Get a Witness, which is based on the initial research project, uh, which was the beginning of the organization. And I originally came on board to essentially just uh, connect with churches, try to get them to let us come in and do the training, et cetera. And then eventually my responsibilities um, grew in the organization, and now I'm the Senior Director of Programs and Partnerships. And so that's how I came to the work. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I have worked with interfaith organizations and you know and they can many of them have been like they're about peace and justice you know mm -hmm. equality except you know when it came down to, to lgbtq it's like plus it was like you know that was like the last frontier and i've known people who are you would say well they're very progressive but they don't want to talk about mm -hmm. our community you know did you find that when you were with that interfaith organization, did you find it was like, okay, they're good, but they don't want to go here? And have you been able to go back 
to some of those organizations and bring them in the fold, open their eyes? Yeah, that's a great question, Michelle. Um, I would say the, the organization that we were at was particularly focused on civic interfaith, organi- uh, civic interfaith leadership. And so when I was there, their primary focus was working with college students to advance interfaith leadership, to train them to be interfaith leaders. Because what you find is that we live in a very di- religiously diverse country and world in general. And yet many, many college students are not trained uh, to address, to be competent in religious diversity, right? And so what you find is we are training doctors, we're training therapists and counselors, we are training business women and people uh, to work across who are working in theologically and religiously diverse spaces, but they don't have the skill set, they don't have the knowledge base to address the theological and religious diversity that exists. And so I would say, you know, the organization that I was working with was very aware of the gender and sexual diversity, and they addressed that, right? They seen it as a salient aspect of people's identity. Uh, But yet we know every interfaith organization is not like that, right? And so I would hope, and, and I hope the work of Pride in the Pews is reaching interfaith organizations and, and interfaith leaders who need to recognize that, you know, gender and sexual diversity is a salient aspect of religious people, a religious people's diversity as well. And what we find is as humanity is evolving, folks are not willing, and they shouldn't have to, but folks are not willing to put those aspects of their identity on the back burner. Right, but it's in conversation with all aspects of their identity, right? Their race, their racial identity, uh, the places they grew up, uh, how they worship, how they love, uh, et cetera. And so, um, I do think, and I do have hope for uh, interfaith spaces to center um, conversations around gender and sexual diversity. But it's going to take courage, you know. It's going to take courage because what you find is a lot of the funding, right, and a lot of the sort of, yeah, the funding and support, um, at least on an individual on an individual basis, is from folks who don't want to censor those conversations. And so I do have hope that interfaith organizations and, and justice organizations in general um, are moving slowly but surely toward uh, acknowledging uh, gender and sexual diversity as a salient part of folks' identity. You know, one of the things that I like that we were talking uh, about earlier is like, I know many people say, well, we're just going to, we're not welcome here and we're just going to start a gay church. Okay. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think, I think that there are, there are some places, there are things that are very affirming and that are good of it, about it. But if you were raised in whatever denomination you were, there are things mm-hmm. about the church and those traditions that, you know, you miss. To where going to a a gay church isn't that the solution, and also in some ways I've heard some people who said it's almost like um, self segregating. You know, it's like mm. instead of making the change, say, well, we're just going to go over here, we're going to do it all like that, but we we aren't welcome where where we really want to what what we call home, even to the point of you know, going for certain weddings, uh, funerals, mm-hmm. homecomings. Mm-hmm. 
and I know that you were talking about, you said, and it is, and I was just reading how you said that you work with uh, some eight historically black religious denominations as well, and Christian groups, as well as with, you know, gay churches. How do you, do you find a way where clergy of a gay church can find a way to talk to to clergy of a historically black denomination and sort of say, well, this is where we're at and how do we bridge this? I'm not trying to take your people away from you, but mm-hmm. both here, it's good, but we want to make it more welcoming there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're exactly right. And that's the work that we do here, right? We're all about building bridges and creating solutions, right? And so one of the ways that we put, you know, sort of straight identifying clergy in conversation with queer and trans clergy is through the Black Church Equality Fellowship. So the Black yeah. Church Equality Fellowship um, is a, we just launched it a couple months ago. It is a new premier uh, nationwide fellowship program where 10 black faith leaders from across the country are brought together in a cohort model um, to advance LGBTQ plus advocacy within their local context. And so um, it is a fully funded program uh, funded by Trinity Wall Street, which is a great family foundation out of New York. Um, where we are able to give each fellow $4,000 ongoing support um, and different learning and development opportunities um, as they carry out projects in their local congregation that is aimed at advancing LGBTQ plus advocacy. And so in this fellowship, we have clergy who identify as queer and trans, and we also have clergy who uh, who identify as heterosexual, and they are put in conversation with each other to talk about their lived experiences, um, to talk about the highs and lows of promoting and trying to advocate for LGBTQ plus people both inside and outside of the church. So that is one of the primary ways that we do this. It has been a joy thus far uh, to be in conversation with these 10 faith leaders because they are serious about doing this work and doing it well and doing it in a way that does not harm people and that also does not alienate anybody, right? And that's, it's, not, it's not to say that it's easy, right? Uh, but the point is to give them a skill set, right? What is active listening? How do you facilitate conversations across lines of difference, right, to give them a knowledge base, um, both sort of a theological knowledge base? And so uh, we had our first module learning session, uh, which is virtual, um, with Reverend Dr. Pamela Lightsey, um, who is a dean at uh, Meadville uh, Theological Seminary, uh, where she spoke and taught on theologies of liberation, um, namely womanist theologies and black liberation theology, right? Giving them a knowledge base, how, uh, giving them a theological language to have these conversations with their parishioners and with their leaders. So we give them a skill set, a knowledge base, and a network. And that network is each other and those we are in conversation with, right? And so the cohort model is so great because um, it gives them folks that they can lean on, 
right? It gives them partners in the work that they can brainstorm with, that they can say this worked, but this didn't work so well, right? That they can share the roses and the thorns and that they can have a support system while they carry out this work. And so I know fellows, you know, they, the only, they talk both when we gather them formally, but they also uh, have each other's numbers and email addresses. And so they are in constant communication with each other as they are trying to figure out how to do this work. And so that's how we put, you know, queer and trans a clergy in conversation with um, clergy who identify as heterosexual. Another way that, that we do that is through our yearly symposium. And so every February we have a symposium uh, called the State of the Black Church, where we bring faith leaders, activists, um, and laypersons together from across the country uh, to have courageous conversations, you know, at the intersection of the Black church and gender and sexual diversity, right? Courageous conversations and public discussions around inclusion and culturally relevant topics. And we are intentional in whose voices we amplify, right? Because we believe that queer and trans Christians, their stories and their lived experiences, our stories and our lived experiences are sacred, right? They hold weight and value in the Christian community. And since our voices have been some of the most marginalized our work at Pride and the Pews is about centering and amplifying our stories because everybody has something to learn from our lived experiences. What we experience gives us perspective, a unique perspective in the world and around justice and equity and how to uh, and how to be architects of equity and architects of justice. And so we that's how we put folks in conversation with each other. We like to think of it as putting unlikely conversation partners together in spaces where they can learn and grow together. Hmm. You know, it, 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 it's funny, too, you know, because there is that role. I know a couple of years ago the NAACP had their conference here, and Reverend Sadler, Karen Sadler, she put together, she wants to put together this, this workshop to sort of like have us be there. And they called it like the state of LGBTQ people in the black community. And the thing that was funny was it was like, although there were people who came to see us and to participate in this panel and this discussion, there were some, many who were of clergy who, you know, sort of frowned on us being there. And, you know, and there were people who said, like, you know, I didn't give away my, my black card. I didn't give mm-hmm. away my card. You know, I'm here. And even within that body, here we were separate. When you look at some of, and, mm-hmm. and we know, you know, some mm-hmm. of our religious denominations, you have those that you're working with, but even, like, in their broader group. There's going to be some who are going to like, you know, well, y'all are good. If you want to have those gay people up in there or, you know, have a trans minister, that's okay, but that's not us. Mm. How do you help them? I mean, because it's, it's two things. First of all, they have to be bold to go in and talk to the fellow members of their denomination, you know, to say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, some of that. But also, how do you support them? Because that kind of work is hard. Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. You're right, Michelle. You know, one of the ways that we do that is by giving them the narrative, right? Giving them a narrative. And so what research, what research has shown us over the last couple of years 
is that there is a gap between the pulpit and the pew. And what I mean by that is you mentioned it, you mentioned it earlier. Zero out of eight historically black denominations are LGBTQ plus affirming. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, 65% of black Protestants favor LGBTQ plus non-discrimination protections, right? And so what we see is that on the one hand, those in power, those who have the authority to make and create official denominational stances are not in agreement. They are not in agreement with those who are in the pew, with those who are giving their money every Sunday, right? Giving their time, their talent, and their treasure to ensure that the work of the church is advanced. And so what we help them see and advocate for and amplify is the fact that there are people in our congregations who are LGBTQ plus or who are allies and advocates of the community. And at the same time, those in the pulpit, you know, one of the things that we encounter in our work is pastors who say, you know, personally, I don't see anything wrong with it. Personally, I affirm LGBTQ plus people in their full humanity and their full divinity. But I can't say that from my pulpit because of the mm-hmm. denomination, because there are people in the church um, who will disagree and who will leave. And those people are more than likely the people who are giving their money every Sunday and helping the church run and make budget, et cetera, et cetera. And so we want to help our pastors and our leaders and even the congregation tease out that nuance, right, that we have to address. We have to address the fact that there is a gap. And then number two, we have to address the fact that the church has historically harmed LGBTQ plus people, and that is not the the call of the church. The call of the church is to be life-giving. The call of the church is to create a space in a community where people can meet with each other and meet the divine, right? And so what we try to help folks see is that the church is not living into its full self, right? When we don't amplify and when we don't affirm and validate the full humanity and divinity of LGBTQ plus people, uh, we are failing at what we are supposed to be doing, right? We are failing at being the hands and the feet of Jesus. And one thing we know about Jesus is that Jesus centered those on the margins, right? He hung out with those and he broke bread with those who were most despised in society, women, tax collectors, prostitutes, et cetera. Right. He said, these are the people who I am called to and I'm going to bring them to the center and I'm going to center them. And that's essentially what the whole story of the Bible is about. Right. The Bible has a special affinity for those on the margins, for helping them receive the victory in the unlikeliest of ways. And so that's what we try to do. We try to give people um Again, a knowledge base, a skill set, and a network to understand that this work is important, to understand that this work needs to be done, and to understand that the church will not live into the fullness of who it is and what it's called to do if we don't advocate for LGBTQ plus people, not just inside of the church, but outside of the church. You know, the organization started because uh, Reverend Don Abramar, founder, was participating in, you know, protests. Uh, after the murder of George Floyd. And Mm -hmm. one thing that he noticed was that 
and this is something that you can look at the history of, of the church's advocacy, is that it has not advocated for LGBTQ plus people. The way that it showed up for Michael Brown, the way that it showed up for George Floyd, is not the way that it showed up for queer and trans people who died at the hands of police, right? And so what we tried to do is say all Black lives matter, not just mm. the straight ones, not just the male ones, right? But all Black lives matter. And when we begin to center those who are most marginalized, like queer and trans and non-binary people, then everybody receives the benefits of equity and inclusion, right? And that's a tenet of womanist theology. When you center those who are on the margins the most, everybody benefits. Now, in your programming, and as you're doing that, you know, we have to always think about our young people. And there are a lot of queer young people who have been pushed out using mm -hmm. often with that religious banter, you know, that you're, you're, you who still feel that, that they are the sin or they're the black sheep, you know, uh, mm -hmm. black sheep of the family, but they don't have a church home. And they're looking for a sense of community, which is also one of the things that that church has provided. And they're looking for safe haven. We have a lot of queer youth who are homeless. We look at Absolutely. Our sisters and brothers who are being abused, brutalized, murdered, and victimized in a neighborhood. You know, they can. There was one here in Detroit who actually they said that the person who had uh, victimized her was a member of the clergy. <laughs> yeah. And she had been out there, and people heard her shouting, and no one looked. How do mm. we help the churches also press that, you know, that we are our brothers and sisters' keeper? You know, mm -hmm. we, are, we are part of that village that is supposed to raise these children. How, how do you find that working into the work of pride in the pews? Mm. That, is a, that is a great question. Well, one, I'll say, you know, our, our mission statement is Pride of the Pews builds bridges and creates solutions that empower that Black LGBTQ plus community to thrive in the pew, in the pulpit, in the public square. And so that's how we think about our work. That's how we talk about our work publicly through those three Ps, if you will, the public square, the pulpit, and the pew. And one of the ways that we do that is by simply creating space and place for social connection and storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. What we found is, and this was not in a, an initial part of our work, but people came to us for community, right? Because, like you said, they did not find a safe haven, and they do not find a safe haven in the Black church, right, mostly. And so, one, we try to do that ourselves, right? And so early on, some of our earliest programming – excuse me, some of our earliest programming um, was what we call Black LGBTQ plus Christian Mingles, right, that was held during the height of the pandemic, you know, so when folks could not gather together uh, in person, uh, we held them virtually, and we saw more success than we were anticipating. And that let us know right there that, that we could not put that on the back burner, that we had to prioritize creating space and place for people to gather, to be with like-minded people, whether or not they identify as queer and trans, right? Uh, but to come together and so pe people can see that, hey, there are people who are interested in doing this work, 
who are interested in creating community across lines of difference um, and that they were going to prioritize that. So that's one of the ways that we do that. A second way that we do that is through our trainings, right? Um, we, leading up to um, going to churches and, you know, conducting and facilitating the Can I Get a Witness training, um, we have strategy sessions with the pastor and the team that the, the pastor has assembled uh, to do this work. And it's often in those conversations, right, leading up to it and afterwards, where pastors and the team, they have questions about how to create space and create community uh, for folks. And so we do that through consultancy, right? And we'll just sit and have a conversation and give them tricks and tips and tools to do so. And all of this is context specific, right? And so what works for one church doesn't mean that it's going to work for another church um, because each church is unique and faces its own problems and have its own context and makeup. And so um, that's the second way that we do that. And then the third way that we do that is again by putting folks in conversation with each other, right? What we find is that, you know, we obviously we don't have all the answers, uh, but the answers exist within our communities. The answers exist uh, within our network. And so we put people in conversation with one another, both formally and informally, so that they can brainstorm together, they can troubleshoot, they can find ways to make this work because we know it works and we know folks want to get it right. And so we put folks together to do it right, to get it right. Uh, when you and, and Reverend Abrams, when you both when you sat down and he said, you know, you know, this is what we need to do. Did you, how has this evolved from those early conversations when you both left mm. the same the same organization, but you knew that what that you had the work ahead of you. How has it evolved, and yeah, and is it still is the need still as great, or do you see it growing, a growing need, particularly with COVID? Mhm, mm mhm. Mm That's a great question. <sighs> wow, yeah, it has definitely evolved, and we know it will keep evolving, right? And so, what I'll say is. Uh, in the beginning, when I first joined, as I, you know, was sharing earlier, it was initially to connect Pride in the Pews with the churches and with pastors uh, to conduct the trainings, right? We wanted to go into churches across the country and say, hey, we have this resource. We want to, you know, sit down with you and your leaders and anybody else you want in the room uh, to talk about how we advance LGBTQ plus advocacy in your congregation. That was it. That that was sort of our, one of our first programs, right? And what we began to notice is that we could not limit these conversations to the church, right? But what we needed to do is be in conversation with, as we say, the institutions that mediate the everyday lives of Black LGBTQ plus people, right? And what we realized is the church was just one of those institutions. Um, but a second and one of the most important institutions that also do that is city and, you know, municipal departments of public health, right? And so, you know, one of the, there's a lot of funding for uh, HIV and AIDS work and getting, right, this campaign to zero, um, to zero, to zero new transmissions of HIV, 
And so what we realized is that, right, so the Can I Get a Witness project, what it showed us, um, one of the most salient things that came from the Can I Get a Witness project, um, which was uh, 66 interviews conducted with Black LGBTQ plus Christians from across the country, uh, from 21 to 69 years of age. Uh, one of the things that we saw uh, was a significant number of participants expressed experiences with depression, with anxiety, and with suicidal ideation due to anti-LGBTQ plus theologies. And so what that showed us was that the larger conversation is around health and wellness, right? Health and wellness. And that's what it, that's what it has expanded to. And so we are chiefly and primarily concerned with the overall health and wellness of Black LGBTQ plus people, right? What the data shows us is that when folks, when people are in environments that do not affirm the fullness of who they are, they do disproportionately have ex ex experiences with depression, anxiety, anxiety, substance abuse, and suicidal ideation. But the, tr but the opposite is true as well. When people are in environments, particularly religious and familial environments that affirm the fullness of who they are, they have better health outcomes, they have higher uh, rates of income and wealth, and all the things that help us thrive and flourish in this world. And so that's how it has evolved. We are interested in being in conversation with public health practitioners, with uh, healthcare providers, with clergy and pastors, with universities and colleges, and all the institutions that mediate the everyday lives of, of Black LGBTQ plus people, because it's holistic, right? It's about the holistic health and wellness of Black LGBTQ plus people. And if we're going to address their physical health, their mental and emotional health, and their spiritual health, we have to be in conversation and we have to empower the institutions that serve them uh, to do their best work in the world. Wow. That, that is so, I mean, really, because like, you know, like you were talking about the health, not, you know, not only physical health, mental health, and there are certain, I mean, it all makes a person. And if you're not mm -hmm. dealing with it all holistically, you know, you're leaving something on the, on the back burner. And which someone can fall through the cracks. So I know that, that, that's exactly I mean, right. I know you're not just Chicago. You're you're branching out across the nation. What has been the reception in other municipalities, other states, as you go get, leave Chicago and go out and talk to people? Are they coming to you, or are you seeking them out? Yeah, that's a great question. The reception has been phenomenal, honestly. I think it's been better than we could have planned for and imagined, you know. Um, it's funny because, you know, although we are based in Chicago, the work is mostly outside of Chicago as of now, right? We have such a great presence in New York. Uh, we have a great presence in Atlanta. Uh, we are branching out in Texas and other parts of the Deep South. Um, North Carolina, Alabama, et cetera. And so um, the reception has been wonderful. And what we realize is, you know, this work needs to be done in the North and in the South. Uh, you know, the, the sort of socio-political context may be different in some of these places, 
um, but the but the need is all there, right? The need is the same. And so, you know, in our Black Church Equality Fellowship, we have churches from across the country in Colorado, in Texas, in Georgia, in Iowa, in New York, in North Carolina, in Tennessee, right, et cetera. And, you know, the work needs to be done because Black LGBTQ plus people are everywhere in the country. And the Black church is also everywhere in the country. And so that means that the work is everywhere in the country. And so the reception has been well. You know, we've uh, had uh, partnerships with institutions from across the country. Uh, back in October, we did a two-day uh, symposium and conference with the University of Pennsylvania. Um, we, uh, for our annual symposium in February, a couple months ago, we did it in partnership with the Union Theological Seminary in New York, you know, um, and next year, uh, in February, 2024, our annual symposium is more than likely going to be in Atlanta, you know, and so we are always looking for ways, uh, to branch out, uh, to take the work across the country. And yes, we are seeing success in particular parts of the country. Um, but I think that that's just because um, of the people who we are and we've had the opportunity to be in community and in connection with, you know, um, our first, the first church training that we conducted was in St. Louis, Missouri, um, at St. John's UCC, the beloved community, where the wonderful Pastor Michelle Higgins, who's a great friend of Pride and the Pews and a personal friend of Don and myself, uh, where she leads this beautiful, multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, congregation that is that has a foundation of being open and affirming, right, to LGBTQ plus uh, people, to queer and trans and non-binary people. They have queer and trans people in their leadership and in their peers, you know, and so uh, the work and the reception has been wonderful, and that's how we've been able to do the work, you know, great folks have been amplifying our work, have been putting us in connection with their colleagues, with their friends, um, uh, you know, as our sort of chief partnerships officer, I can't, you know, I, 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 if I had a dime for every time I was in conversation with one person, but they put me in connection with three to five other people, you know, as they say, I'd be a rich man by now. And so what happens is you find folks who are passionate, who want to get it right, folks who also have been doing this work before we did, you know, before we entered the space. And so we honor those who came before us, whose shoulders we stand on, who's pushing us forward, who's putting us in conversation with the leaders at, you know, corporations, at universities, at congregations, big and small across the country. And so the reception has been wonderful, and it's one of the chief reasons we've had this, we've seen the success and experienced the success that we've had in just in just two to three years, you know, so it's been wonderful. Well, I have to tell you, you it does my heart and my spirit so much good to hear you talk about that. I can recall many, many years ago, and I want to say at least 20, if, if not more, I was mm -hmm. at uh, a brunch, and there was an African-American woman there whose son had been killed because he was gay. And mm -hmm. at that point in time, I was in a room with mo you could have counted the black people on one hand, and she came and she told how when she went to her church, how some people said to her, well, you know, that, you know, he shouldn't have been living like that. And mm. how even her, like her church 
had turned its back on, not only on her son, but on her and yes. how she ended up getting help. And she came to me and she said, she looked at me and she said, what are you going to do? Wow. And I'm like, who, me? <laughs> you know? And she said, what are you going to do? Because she said, it was up to us mm-hmm. to change what was happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in our, in our communities, in our churches, and to hear you talk about what you're doing and all the places and how, you know, that to me is just like, like I said, it's just like it, it, it fills my heart with such joy to know, you know, that mm-hmm. it was like she put it out there and it's still going out there and here in different ways and here you are and you're taking it right there to pride in the pews. That's yes. her son had been raised in the church, had been reared in the church. But when he came out, he was ostracized. And mm-hmm. when he was murdered, her church sort of turned it back on her. And here mm-hmm. you're changing that. You're changing that. Yes, yes, yes. Thank, thank you. I, I am, my heart is moved hearing your words and just, you know, just experiencing your, your sentiments of gratitude um and i am moved because i know people personally who left the church you know um uh, and and have not returned to this day uh, because the church will not accept them or refuses to accept the fullness of who they are and so the work is ever more important um because of the things that are going on in places like florida in Texas right now in this country um, where you can't even talk about equity and inclusion. You can't, you know, programs around LGBTQ plus are being banned from public spaces, right? And so it seems in many ways like the country is moving backwards. And those are the narratives that are censored on the news, that's censored in our public spaces and in the public zeitgeist of the country. But there is a remnant if you will, right? Uh, There are other narratives that can be amplified, and that's what we are trying to do. We're trying to show that there is a growing movement of people, both Christian and non-Christian, both religious and not religious, who are demanding, right, that space be made for them because they deserve it. You know, the Bible says that all people are created in the image and in the likeness of the divine, right? And mm-hmm. even in this country, enshrined in our constitution, is that all men, all people are created equal, you know, and have inalienable rights. And so mm-hmm. we are demanding that our institutions live up to that truth, right? You cannot extract the divinity of LGBTQ plus people through our gifts, through our talents, and through our experiences while denying our humanity. Mm-hmm. People are refusing to accept it. And I am so encouraged by, you know, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only 31 years of age. I, you know, I tell people I've lived a full life already, um, but <laughs> I'm so encouraged by the generations after me, you know, uh, Gen Zers. <laughs> you know, because they are courageous, they are bold, because they're born into a world 
where, you know, gay marriage, marriage equality has always been a thing. You know, we are seeing a growing representation of queer and trans people in our media. And so they are recognizing, just in the same ways that we've recognized, you know, that we can work differently, right, that we can work remotely and be just as productive. Uh, we're starting to have that same evolution in the ways in which we recognize that there are people who love differently, who identify differently. And that adds to the beauty of who we are as humanity, you know? And so one thing that we try to help churches and, and congregants see is that, you know, one thing that we find is that a lot of people are saying, you know, every day there's a new, a, a new letter added to LGBTQ plus I, right? And folks see it as something that's daunting. But we try to flip that on its head and say, what if we saw that as an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what if we saw that as an opportunity to see uh, the diversity of God's creation? Every day that we learn something new about people is a day that we learn something new about God, about God's creation. And that is a plus, right? That is an advantage that we should be taking care of, and we shouldn't see it as a bad thing, but we should see it as an opportunity to celebrate the diversity of God's creation and to see how humanity has a myriad of ways of identifying, of moving through the world, of loving in the world, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is just amazing, you know. Well, I am looking forward to meeting you and everyone. I hope you bring a whole crew to the Esteem Awards. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that the – I I like the Esteem Awards in part because I'm going to tell you, I'm a, I'm a fan of Phil because mm -hmm. it does recognize people who are doing it, you know, doing mm -hmm. the work. I mean, there's always the, the big organizations. They get enough of it. But it's like the people who are doing the work and touching hearts and minds and making change um, – I think that Pride in the Pews is, is right up there. You know, I, I'm, I'm just, like, so excited, like, to learn more about you. I'm going to be following you. When you, when you heard, what does this award mean to Pride in the Pews? Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yes, we are just very, very grateful to be receiving this award. It means a lot. It means that there are people who recognize the importance of centering the black LGBTQ plus experience. You know, so much of LGBTQ plus advocacy historically, right, has centered, you know, white, queer mm -hmm. and trans people. Um, but history tells us that the queer and trans rights movement was started in New York by black and brown, queer, and trans people, you know? And as so many movements for justice, it's usually co-opted, right? It's usually co-opted and whiteness is centered. But, you know, the Esteem Awards, you know, it, it, it means that there are folks who want to amplify and honor the work of Pride in the Pews, which is an organization that is chiefly concerned with Black LGBTQ plus people. You know, and so it just means a lot in our young organization, you know, to be uh, to be honored in this way. But most of all, it's an opportunity to amplify the work. 
to get more people involved, to get more people supporting the work, sharing the work of Pride in the Pew so that our impact can grow. You know, uh, we recognize that we don't do this work alone, but we are joining people who've done this work for decades, right? And we are interested in censoring those experiences, you know? Uh, we are interested in censoring the experience of people like Pauli Murray, of Bayard Rustin, of James mm-hmm. Baldwin, you know? These historically Black iconic figures whose, ide- whose sexual and gender identities are usually marginalized, right? And so we are interested in censoring that, and the Esteem Awards just gives us an opportunity to take the work and to amplify the work and to, uh, and to exponentially multiply the impact of the work. And so we're just very grateful, and we are so uh, excited uh, to join the other um, awardees um, like the Chicago Foundation for Women, um, you know, Joe D. Jackson, um, Dr. Maurice Brownlee, et cetera, and to learn more about their work and find ways that we can partner together uh, to ensure that the lives of LGBTQ plus uh, people, queer, trans, non-binary, black and brown folks have what they have what they need to flourish and to thrive in this world. You know, I mentioned our mission statement, which talks about the work that we do of building bridges and creating solutions that empower the LGBTQ plus community to thrive. Uh, but I want to, you know, talk about our vision. Our vision, right, inspired by the liberating tradition of the Black church, we envision a world where Black communities can live, work, play, and pray freely. Mm. Can live, work, play, and pray freely. And that is the world that we are building towards. And so we are very excited to be receiving an esteem award and to meet all the other awardees, both past and present, to think about ways we can partner together to make sure all of our work uh, receives the attention that it deserves. And how, what is the best way for individuals, organizations, um, individuals, organizations, churches to contact Pride in the Pews? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, First, uh, they can, you know, we encourage and invite folks to follow us on our socials. It's at Pride in the Pews. Again, it's at Pride in the Pews on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Uh, We're very Mm -hmm. active on socials. Um, We love the engagement that we receive, and so we invite folks to follow us there. We invite folks to visit our website, prideinthepews.com, prideinthepews.com. And we also encourage folks to reach out to us by email. Um, they can reach us um, at general at prideinthepews.com, general at prideinthepews.com. We will be happy to be in conversation with churches, with departments of public health, with colleges and universities, and with just, you know, everyday people who have questions, who want to get it right, who are interested in supporting the work, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, Calvin, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, like I said, I will be there. I look forward to meeting everybody. You, you bring the whole crew. Bring the whole yes. crew. Uh, um, I, you know, it is such imp- I love what you're doing because, there's a sense of community. I mean, 
And church and black people, like I said, it has often been our lifeline. It has been our way when there was no way. And it should be that for all of us, you know. That's right. You know, and you shouldn't have to decide, am I gay or am I a Christian? Am I, do I go to, you know, a gay organization or do I go to my church home? Do I, you know, and, and if you choose to go to a gay church that on certain issues you can partner with your historically black churches for equality and justice. And you're That's doing right. that work. It's important work. And I thank you and pride in the pews for all you do. Michelle, it has been an honor and really just a joy to be in conversation with you. Um, you know, collections by Michelle Brown. I've heard of of this platform before. And so it's just, it, it's an honor to be on here to talk about the work. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the work that you have been doing to center and amplify this work. And I'm very much looking forward to meeting you at the Esteem Awards. It's going to be an honor and a privilege, and I hope and I know we're going to have a lot of fun. We definitely are. <laughs> well, thank you, and you have a good evening. And um, I want to thank my guest, Pride in the Pews, Director of Partnerships and Programs, Kelvin Taylor. Launched in 2020 by Pastor Don Abram, Pride in the Pews collects and shares stories of LGBTQ plus people and the black church and includes a group of eight historically black religious denominations and other Christian groups that primarily minister to African Americans. The organization will be recognized for its work at this year's Esteem Awards in Chicago. You can support Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio by following on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram or becoming a monthly supporter on Patreon.com. Current and past episodes of a show can be heard on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Stay tuned as we continue to introduce you to more amazing individuals living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.